Hello, readers. Hope you're well. Happy New Year. We're off for the next few weeks. Writing, editing. Well, it's just like rereading. Here's a rebroadcast of a previous episode. It's That Stack of Books, episode four, wherein Nancy just brings two books in. That is a very short stack, Nancy. That's like going to the, going to the IHOP and only getting two pancakes. Well, Steve, I, I walked today. I, I felt I needed to make this part of my daily constitutional, and so I didn't want to carry too many books, but I, I do have two. Um, interestingly enough, both from little free libraries. Like the one that's right out in front of the Sunflower, the Brian Corner Cafe. So, uh, you know, we invite people to come sit at the table. So Katie's here again. Hi. Kathy's here. Hello. And me. Hello. And Gail. Good morning. And anybody else who wants to sit down, because there's one chair there still for Ezekiel. Not Ezekiel, Elijah. Elijah. Though Ezekiel may come too. Any of the e-angels can, or prophets can come and sit with us today. So you got both of these from the little free presses that the uh, pop free, up? The little, little free libraries? The little, the little free libraries, which, I, which I'm just a huge fan of. Um, and I just love their, um, I love what they look like. I love that you can go through a neighborhood and, you know, one will look like a little house and one will look like, uh, you know, there's one that I pass every day that changes depending on the season whether it's um, yeah I, I think they must have like 10 or 12 of them and when the Seahawks were in the uh, uh, Super Bowl last year which sad to say they won't be in the Super Bowl this year I don't believe there, you know they have there are many games and there are still the playoff berths the wild card berths all right, but I am a pessimist. The glass is always totally empty, in my opinion. <laughs> Nonetheless, um, so they had a big, like a Seahawks little little free library. And little free libraries, anybody can, can start one. There's a, now a national organization began in Wisconsin. There's going to be, it's either out now or coming out, a book of pictures of little free libraries and they did and um, I was one of the contributors so they did some of the uh, of my favorite little free libraries which um, boy you could just do so many great things so I brought two books from that which we could either um, please I just wanted to say that I was at a design festival down in Occidental Square a month or so ago and the little free library um, organization was represented with a big display of pictures from little free libraries from all over the country, including ones that look like uh, uh, hang books off bicycle wheels and some that are like roller coasters. There's all sorts of people are getting quite fanciful with their little free libraries. All right, what are these two books? Well, this one happens to be, I'm sure everyone um, is familiar with the uh, novelist and essayist Ann Patchett, and this happens to be Ann Patchett's favorite, one of her favorite books this year. She just loves this book. And it's called The Untold Stories of 33, well, it's called Deep Dark Down, and the subtitle is The Untold Stories of 33 Men Buried in a Chilean Mine and the Miracle that Set Them Free. And do you remember when the mine in, in Chile collapsed? And I mean, the world was focused on what happened, what was going to happen to these men and how they would survive um, two months or so there. And this is their story. And it's just, uh, it, it's um, it, pretty riveting. 
There was an excerpt of this in the New Yorker, so you might have read some of it there, but this one is the whole book, and there's a lot in it. Hector Tobar, a journalist who covered this? The way I knew Hector, the name Hector Tobar was from a couple of novels that he had written, so I did not realize he was a journalist, um, if indeed he is a journalist. I still know him as a novelist. And indeed, this is a book that, um, while it's factual, and he spent a lot of time with the men who survived, uh, tracking what happened to them after the the accident and after they were freed. It's also um, very novelistic in the sense that it's a page turner. Wall-to-wall well, uh, -wall coverage for months. What are we learning here that we didn't read in the uh, yeah. in the New York Times or see yeah. on CNN? I think there was a lot of um, of the. Uh, emotional interchanges between the men and how each of these 33 men reacted to the dark and the deprivation and the hunger and the lack of faith and the fear that they weren't going to see their parent their their families again um, I think we get in 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 this book a much better idea of what of what working in a mine is like and it's pretty not something you would want to do if you had it's it's very difficult and it and it's just not it the way it's described is very is not attractive and um the other thing that it does in this book is talk a lot about what happened to the men after they came out and how they responded to those 60 days that that they were there um, and some handled it better than others. Some thought they would become movie stars, and, and some thought that they would make millions out of their experiences. And some had PTSD, and uh, it, for some, it made them better people. For some, it wrecked their lives. It's very, very interesting. Ann Patchett is a great writer, and she owns a bookstore. Does this, how did you come across her commenting on this being her favorite book of the year? Oh, I thought you'd never ask. She, 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 we were friends, and so she emailed me and said, because <laughs> we always talk about what we're reading, and she said um, this was the book that she was reading, and she thought it was the best book of, uh, at least one of the best books of the year. She, her opinion was um, that it wasn't a great year for fiction. Um, but this was a book that she thought everybody should read. If I cast my mind back, that was your opinion of this year, wasn't it? I, I've been having trouble finding things to read. I've been, I seem to remember we had some conversations where you were just uh, reading old books because you hadn't found anything new this 2014. Yeah, yes. And I mean, I'm still reading old books. And we talked about Peter Temple last week. Well, I'm still reading Peter Temple. And now I'm re-watching the Acorn Media productions of the Peter Temple Jack Irish series. Um, and I, and you know, desperately looking for new thrillers. So luckily, when I was walking by another free library on my way here, I picked up um, a book published by Soho uh, this I guess this is part of Soho Press. It's called Soho Crime, that aspect of the publishing company. And it's a thriller. Uh, the New York Times Book Review said it was a suspense story of infernal cunning. That makes me a little nervous you know, because I don't, I'm not much into that infernal cunningness. 
but um, uh, she is an Australian crime writer, and Peter Temple, all of, all of whose books I've been reading, is also an Australian crime writer. So I thought I would try. And this is called The Souvenir by Patricia Carlon, C-A-R-L-O-N. Well, that's it? You're not, that's all you know about it? You just, you just randomly picked that up because you like the press and the... Well, because, yeah, I, well, how else do you choose books? I like the press. There, Nancy, might be the rub. How else do you choose books? How do you choose books? This one I didn't even open up and read. Usually I'll, I will open up and read the first paragraph to see if the writing is so wonderful or so terrible that I don't want to approach it. I, I eliminate any books that appear to be too scary. I don't like serial killers. Um, I don't like books that are that are described generally as heartwarming or, um, you know, will bring a tear to your eye. And uh, th three hanky reads. I've read my share of three hanky reads. You know those books that you need three handkerchiefs because you're sobbing so much. I've I've read my share of those books, but. In general, I don't like to be emotionally manipulated. So this one, you're now a little bit intrigued because Jefferson Shields might have some frumpiness to disappoint the woman who walked through the door. Is that the you read on? I bet. I, I who knows? I will let you know next week how I how far I get on this. Do you ever pick books by their cover? Um, I, 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 I don't ever reject a book by its cover. I sometimes think. What were they thinking of? Like, I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of Donna Tartt's second novel, The Little Friend. And I read it before the cover was put on it. I read it in when it was a, an uh, advanced reading copy, and there was no real cover, you know, there was no illustrated cover. And the final, and the illustrate, and I loved the book. And the illustrated cover is by Chip Kidd, who's a very, very, you know, wonderful, well known cover designer. And the cover made it look like a Chucky movie. And, I, and that's not the kind of books that I like at all. If I had seen that cover, there's no way that I would have um, picked up that book and therefore I would have missed a terrific, a terrific novel. Does anybody else judge a book by its cover? You do? Well, I don't judge, but I have removed covers before because I just can't stand looking at them. And I don't know. I don't know, uh, even if they're on the shelf, if, even if I haven't gotten to them yet, I'll remove the cover if I find it obnoxious in some way. Oh, well, that's good. That's a good way not to be bothered by the, the Chucky version, huh? Oh, yes, absolutely. And in fact, I, and, and the Chucky version, which I understand she, Donna Tartt, really liked a lot because they re, <laughs> they did it on the paperback version as well, which kind of made it sad for me. I think the one I have on my bookshelf, I think I did take off the cover permanently. Wow. But I want to know how everybody else chooses books. How do you choose books, Gail? I get lists from the book club I'm in, and sometimes I choose alternate books that we keep a list of books that weren't chosen for, for the year. We choose, you know, a book a month for the year, like everybody, I think. And and um, so I do use, use that, and then also just talking to friends about books or listening to Nancy Pearl. If you're doing um, a ranking of how people found out about what books to read, f talking to friends is the highest 
and really um, in, in some ways, many people feel the most reliable way to do, to do that. Yeah. I've, I've had some friend recommendations that just have left me scratching my head. My record of recommendations with my husband, I would grade myself at probably a, maybe a C minus, D plus. Yeah, books I know that he would just love. You know, it turns out like he doesn't just love them. <laughs> so. How do you choose books, Mamie? Well, I'm in the same book club, and uh, the women in it are so diverse that uh, we get uh, quite a broad spectrum of types of books, and so you're almost guaranteed not to like some of the ones that they recommend, but sometimes it's worth reading them anyway, because you get something out of it you would never have come across otherwise. Pretty much the same. I belong to a history book club and a book club, and uh, one of the advantages, particularly of the more general book club, is it pushes me outside of my box. Uh, our format is you bring is that you bring five or six books to choose from, and um, so you're exposed to a, to a lot of books that way. I do quite seriously follow Nancy Pearl's recommendations, <laughs> and I track writers that I'm uh, that I uh, appreciate. You know, waiting for their next book to come out, pretty much. That's Kathy. That's Katie. What do you do? Well, I had an interesting year last year because I was living overseas, and um, and where English books were hard to come by. And so I had one good friend that lived there who had, or, and she's been there for the last 10 years, so she's been ordering books and having them mailed to her. So her library became sort of my library, but she's very touchy-feely about her books and doesn't like to let anybody handle certain ones. So um, I ended up reading pretty much what she gave me on, on a regular basis, and she just picked a lot of the time. So she had me reading young adult novels. I read a giant... Um, very serious, incredibly dense book about the life of Caravaggio. Uh, you know, she had me reading, um, what is that guy's name, uh, the, the Air Affair? Oh, Jasper. Jasper, <clears throat> Jasper Ford. Uh, yeah. Also, a, 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 I, I could say, I think, a friend. Yes, he, I love him. So she had me reading him. It was this massive variety. And then coupled with things I could find in used bookstores that were in English. So. Like I talked about, I read Little Women. I read a lot of Agatha Christie, you know, because her books are everywhere. Um, a lot of Ian Pears, I think his name is. Um, so it was this weird mystery conglomeration of stuff. So in reality, I really haven't chosen my own books in a while, <laughs> to be honest. I've, uh, I've taken to judging books by their cover because... Uh, when I'll browse the bookstore or the library and, and I have, I'm in a certain mood, then if that book covers do try to call different readers and different styles, right? So I will be attracted to that particular cover because I know it's telling me this is this kind of book and then I'll open it up, read the, read the fly leaf, read the, read the back cover, read the first sentence, and then I'll choose. So, so the back cover in, is frequently now taken up with yeah. blurbs. And I think that blurbs are I, it, I have to say it is one way that I decide whether I'm going to read a book because there are certain writers that I have come to know will blurb anything and give it a rave review and if they are blurbing this particular book I'm not going to read it because I don't trust them 
um, you know, um, all the, it, it appears to me, perhaps mistakenly, that all the Brooklyn writers, of which there are many, blurb each other's books, friends blurb each other's books. All that kind of thing doesn't seem to me to be a way of, um, a way of, of really um, helping you decide whether you want to read the book. So uh, I'm, I'm so cynical. Uh, I just am so, so, so cynical. And so if it's, a, if it's, a, if it's reviewed by somebody whose books, that, whose books I respect, uh, like if, um, if Ann Patchett blurbed a book, the, the chances are I would pick it up and give it a fair try. Um, if, if somebody who's writing I didn't respect review, reviewed a book, uh, blurbed a book, then there's an, I just probably would say, life is too short, I'm not gonna, not gonna waste time. Because you, the great thing about books is they don't disappear. I mean, it's not like they just deconstruct into nothing. If you don't read them, they're going to be there at the library. I mean, they might be a little hard to find, but they're going to be there at the library. Or Don't you think? Yes, You know, um... I wanted to warn you, though, that there's a danger to judging a book by its cover because, I don't know, it, just, it occurred to me another thought was when I was in a bookstore in Italy and it was side by side with all these normal books, like let's take The Awakening, you know, for example, side by side the Italian version and the American English version, yeah, like a Penguin classic or something, and the Italian version would be very beautiful, like the famous painting. And the American version would be a cartoon woman's legs or something like that, you know, something very cheesy. So you never know. They, they're marketing to you specifically as an American, so don't judge. You've got to judge some way. <laughs> you have to make informed decisions, but you have to start somewhere. When I, when I wander, you, you wander the, yes, because we've done it together. We wander the library yeah. stacks and we pull out a book and go, hmm. Right. Uh, yeah, I think that's one of the, uh, maybe one of the lost arts. When I started as a librarian uh, in Detroit years ago, um, when Detroit still had many <laughs> open libraries, um, people would come in and, and they would browse. They would browse through the fiction shelves and they would browse the new bookshelf. And now I find um, people go into a bookstore or a library and they know, they go to the place where they've had the best the best luck finding books that they enjoy and they walk straight to that place and it could be the new bookshelf for a lot of people it is and then they seldom walk two or three steps on either side of that and that whole browsing because of the 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 way uh, these online catalogs have really helped us uh, made it easy in many ways but I think they've they've it, they don't encourage browsing in the same way going into the library and walk I used to walk up and down the shelves looking for an interesting title or uh, something like that and I, I, I don't think we do that so much yeah, yeah. the art of browsing do any of you browse in bookstores I do because there's so many areas of interest so it's always fun just to go and peek and uh, just put your nose into this and that and see what turns up. Part of the trick, when you say being careful, I mean, part of the trick is to, uh, you know, not be, not be guided or misguided by the cover either. That's true. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I was just thinking, um, when you talk about browsing in the library, 
I always try to take something that's from the staff recommends uh, shelf because they rotate it based on whatever, I don't know. Right now they're doing cookbooks at the Ballard Library. I don't know why, but um, it's a way to notice stuff. I don't. Did you used to pick those things out when you worked at the library? Yes. I mean, I, I, what, I think what libraries have done there is, um, I mean, when, when I was a child, my, li my children's librarian had a shelf called Too Good to Miss. And, and so that was where I, that, those are the books she gave me. And that's what sort of turned me into a reader, I think, because by and large, except for a few things, she was pretty right. But um, I think libraries, you know, bookstores have those staff recommends and and those are so valuable I mean I look at those all the time and I love them when they're signed because then you get to know the taste of particular booksellers and you could go back and and get those uh, and I mean if you've had good luck with somebody suggesting a book uh, through those little staff recommend things then you can go back and, and get another book from them yeah one of the smartest things small bookstores took on was that idea Absolutely, in libraries who have a slightly different problem because bookstores have piles of those books, but um, but libraries, you know, the successful library in, in this very kind of wonderfully perverse way, a successful library should have no books on the shelf, you know, because all the books should be checked out. And of course, um, I mean, that's what you want. You you want. You want people to take books off those displays and take them home and love them and and read them for with joy, no matter what it is. Uh, so, um, a, a bit of fluff I read this week was uh, uh, Peter Mayle's latest book. Uh, I think it's his latest book. Yeah, I think so. the Corsican Caper. Mm -hmm. Peter Peter Mayle is like reading. Um, he's like having the simple dessert and relaxing with a. With Brandy's not there's not much pretension to his book, but I always find them easy and pleasant to digest. Do you like him? Um, I, I like the first one, the Provence. He, the he, nonfiction. The nonfiction, right? He he began that that whole. Um, so I moved to and wrote a book about it. That whole genre, and um, and I did I did enjoy that, um, but I haven't read his fiction. It, very similar, uh -huh. very light. Uh huh. And sometimes light is terrific, but... There's a lot of food in it, a lot of wine. And there is a plot. <laughs> well, I, well, Steve, when you said uh, you said something about drinking brandy and everything, do, do you have a cigar, too? No, <laughs> that's not a bad idea, Nancy. I like that idea. I should get myself a cigar for that. Um, but because my heady book, or my weighty books this week, uh, there's a couple, but one I'm finishing up right now is Matt Buys book, All the Truth is Out, which had me thinking about books that uh, try to define the moment in our cultural shift. And he's doing a great job also of referring back to other books. And the main book he's looking at is a book by the journalist Richard Ben Kramer, uh, What It Takes, from 19, well, about the 1988 campaign. And Neil Postman's book, the one that, right. that looks at 1984 and says, no, that's not the world we ended up in. We ended up in Huxley's Brave New World, amusing ourselves amusing to death. Ourselves. Matt Bai's book is amazing because it's, he's really trying to bring in culture and science and technology into what happened to politics and what happened to our culture in that moment. It's a fascinating book. Have you looked and, at it? Yes. Yeah, yes, and it's interesting that he takes one event 
or one man and, and hangs his story on Gary Hart and what happened to Gary Hart politically and how that is emblematic of the end of, um, of, of civility as we know it in yeah. a way. Another book that I think does somewhat of that same thing is the new biography by Richard Norton Smith of Nelson Rockefeller. And I'm really, I'm in the middle of that because I'm going to interview him. And it's, a, it's so interesting. It's 800 pages long, and it's everything about um, Nelson Rockefeller. And that's, and he was very much helped, and he says this in writing the book, by an earlier biography of Rockefeller where the author died af just after he finished the first book and before he could write the second book. But it's, it's, it's the country, what the country was like when Rockefeller was, was growing up and becoming governor of New York and running for president and, and just all these. I, I happen to have been in San Francisco when Rockefeller was booed off the stage when Goldwater was, was nominated. And I remember, I mean, how shocking it was. Um, just how shocking, you know, you just don't think that that's, well, and I just thought it was just awful. Rockefeller plays a role in this book in that Rockefeller's uh, decision to divorce his wife and marry his aide, 18 years, his junior, Happy, was not seen as um, an issue of character that would define him completely as whether he was fit to be president, whereas Bai's thesis is that anything done now is considered um, a, a blemish or, or, or something, you know, something positive on character in terms of ruling, which is a difference. Yeah, I, one of the saddest parts about, uh, that, that I've gotten to thus far, um, in, in the biography of Rockefeller, of Nelson Rockefeller, is that it took him about 10 years to write this book, and he, um, he discovered this uh, sort of uh, uh, treasure trove of letters between Rockefeller and his first wife, and reading those letters when they met and when they were falling in love. I, it, it was, and then knowing what happens later is just heartbreaking. And reading about his son Michael as a young man, knowing his fate, um, it's those things that I think make you think about life, sort of over our, you know, the course of life and the things that happen. Oh wait, before you leave, you have to tell us what you're what you're reading, Mamie. Uh, let's see. I'm reading, uh, let's see, what is the name of it? A Path Appears. No, I just uh, bought that. Um, and I've forgotten the name of the author. I'm terrible with names anyway. It's um, Nicholas Kristof. It's his oh, latest it's, book. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so I've just begun that. Kristof's book about the positive that people are doing to make a better world. And things that anybody can do. Eight, eight or ten things that anybody can do to help do a little piece toward making the world a better place. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's co-written with his wife, yes. right, Cheryl Wu Dunn? Yes. Yeah. I, I interviewed Nicholas Kristof, a very, very brief interview for the Public Library Association, and I said, are you, are you a pessimist or an optimist? And he said, I'm an optimist, of course. And I thought, how can you be an optimist in this... It, 
anyway, but. Well, I interviewed him last week or two weeks ago for that book, A Path Appears, and I asked him the same question. And uh, he, he said that this was his example. He was covering the Congo during the most bloody parts of the, of the war, of many wars, and he was seeing these horrible things happening, uh, beheadings and slaughters and hands being chopped off and people murdering children all around him, I mean literally all around him. And he goes into this church, in a churchyard, where there's this uh, nun from Eastern Europe who has created a haven and has gathered all these children and has saved all these children and has protected them. And his, his feeling was, I could concentrate on the horrible things that humanity does, or I can also concentrate on what wonderful things humanity does and see that as a path that appears before me. So he is making a choice, to be sure, right? And, and that's the choice he decided to make. It's an interesting intellect, but he, he's living it, right? He is covering those things every, every day, every week. So he sees it. He's from Yamhill, Oregon. Where Beverly Cleary, yep. Worked in an apple and apple orchard and a farm for a long time. I was wondering if Katie remembers when Gary Hart came into our uh, our erstwhile employer, our radio studio. Do you recall that at all? Gary Hart, give me more context. Gary Hart, well, he I can't remember what his latest book was when he came, but he was touring for a book. It was you know just maybe 2009, 2010. Uh, but Gary Hart, who had run for president, was the smartest man in the room. That's what they always said about him. And uh, he had come to do an interview, and we were, I was nervous about how am I going to discuss the scandal that defined his life. And, uh, and he just looked at me with that, uh, here's another one. At least I was his peer, or almost his peer, so he could, didn't see me as a kid. But here's another one. Where are we going to go through? Let's do the, you know. And do, so you don't remember. I don't. Did not suffer fools gladly. Oh. <laughs> is, this the, is he the one that walked out of the room? No, no. No, good grief, no. <laughs> okay. No. No, that was just a bad interviewing technique on my part. No, we had a good interview. It was good. But he, he did not uh, enjoy having those things brought up and that's the whole point of Matt Bai's book which is what defines us in the public sphere should not be things that are best left in the private sphere but of course today we define everything as uh, fair game which is Matt Bai's true point everything is fair game and everything is a mark on your character well Nancy you're wearing that t-shirt that says something about you as a person that you know me and my button-down shirt says something entirely different and that's just judging a book by its cover, really, isn't it? It is, totally. Well, I want to hear what other people are reading or what your book club is reading. Um, I'm reading a, right now a book uh, called Pete, Smoke, and Spirit by Andrew uh, Jeffords, and it's a delightful book of uh, social and geological history of Western Scotland, and he uses as to, to pull him through that story, the seven really beautiful uh, single malt whiskey distilleries on the island of Isla. It's a delightful book. Maybe a summer read, but it's a delightful book. Are you a fan? Are you a fan of that, that kind of liquor? 
I am a fan of single malt whiskey, <laughs> and, this, and the season is approaching. And he's excellent in that area, but more importantly, the book is a, a scholarly, well-annotated social history of Scotland, starting in deep time, deep geological time. It's, a, it's an interesting book. That sounds great. I love books that take me through the history by way of a, a thing, an object, a product. You, does that conjure up any books for you? Well, there's that whole series now, A History of the World and A Hundred Objects, and you know all of, all of those uh, that everybody is jumping on the bandwagon. I always find that a little annoying that somebody has a good idea and then every, every publisher within spitting distance comes out, you know, wants to do another book about that. Um, <laughs> that kind of thing but um, yeah I just I, I officiated at a wedding um, this this Saturday it, so I'm available now in case anybody has a wedding coming up you're, you're a universal life I, church I, well I, I thought it was a different sort of thing but but it is was like I guess it is I have to you don't know no I forgot but I <laughs> so maybe you want to check her credentials before she d gets to officiate at no, your no, wedding. No, 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 I officiated. I mean, it, they're married. They're off on, uh, the, on the Orient Express. Um, but, but he's Scottish. The, the young man is Scottish, and, and uh, some of his family came over from Glasgow. And one of them, uh, you know, we had a great talk about the, the vote for independence and uh, Glasgow mystery writers um, versus Edinburgh mystery writers. So uh, that sounds great. Do you know the distinction between Glasgow and Edinburgh mystery writers? I do not know the distinction. <laughs> I know both cities and still don't know the distinction. Well, the, the, the well-known Edinburgh mystery writer is Ian Rankin, and he did the whole John Rebus series. I <laughs> embarrassingly couldn't remember which city it was, but they quickly uh, disabused me of the notion that it was Glasgow and said they had their own mystery uh, writer. But his book, named Campbell Armstrong, I believe, but his books aren't available new here, so I'm going to try to dig them up at some, I'm going to walk down to Magus and look for new books. The public library doesn't have any of them. But his detective is Jewish. Um, in Glasgow, and I thought that is the kind of thing that interests me a lot. So you haven't read him yet. No. So you'll have to report on the differences between Glasgow yeah. and Edinburgh. Yeah. Sometimes those, they're very dark. The Rebus novels have a Glasgow feel to them, don't they? I, rather, I'm, I'm surprised. Right. Yeah. Not, not so much Edinburgh, but they are dark. I'm pretty sure it's Edinburgh. I think I didn't. I didn't drink anything that day because it was that at that wedding because I had to be upright. And is there a difference between Glasgow and Edinburgh single malt scotches? Well, Glasgow has a harder edge, I think, uh, and the Rebus uh, mysteries are are dark and, and very urban angst and. Uh, anyway, it's fascinating. Who's the who's the train spotting author? Uh, um, Irving Welch. 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 And then the famous Glasgow novelist is somebody who I've never been able to read. His books are just too difficult for me. Alastair Gray, and he wrote a book called Lanark. L-A-N-A-R-K. Have you ever read those? 
Right, I, I would agree they're they're very dark. For something lighter, you could try Ann Cleves. Oh, yes. Yes, Ann Cleves, uh, um, the shelter, shelter, um, on the island. The Shetland Islands. And Yorkshire, two different. Oh. One series, Vera, and then the other, the Shetland Islands. Okay, so uh, the other Yorkshire, do you know um, Peter Robinson's books? So, like, a hundred and thousand of them, but all the Yorkshire Dales. Um, and, his, and he has one detective named Alan Banks. So, try those. That was Kathy, by the way. Gail, what are you reading? I just finished The Orphan Train, which is um, a book about, um, well, it's the author... Um, Klein, she um, did a lot of research on orphan trains that were around from like 1855 to 1929, sending children mainly from places like New York, populous places on the East Coast that were orphans or only had one parent who couldn't take care of them, that type of thing, and sent them to the Midwest to work on farms which sometimes worked out well, and the parents that actually adopted the child, but often they just wanted someone to take care of, girls to, take, to do housework and take care of their multiple children, and boys to work in the fields. What, what attracted you to that book? Actually, that was one that our, the book group, Mamie and I, were in. Um, someone had read it this past year and enjoyed it and thought it was a, a good book. So we vote. We In May, we choose the books for the following year, and that was one that was chosen. It sounded good to us. So. What's that conjure up for you? Uh, well, I was just thinking about book clubs and, and how much fun it would be to compare uh, all the different books that people are reading and which ones make a good discussion and which ones don't because I would say that the mysteries that we've been talking about don't make a good book club discussion um, because there's nothing to say except the plot. Oh, except? Motherless Brooklyn. Very discussable, I think. But that, that, I agree. That's an exception. Might be an exception. Yes, I, I totally agree. Motherless Brooklyn uh, by Jonathan Lethem is just a fabulous book club book, and I have not thought of that book for mm -hmm. so long. And maybe I'll go reread re it because it's so good. I, I oh, absolutely, that would be a really good one. And actually, Peter Temple's my favorite writer, Peter Temple's novel. The Broken Shore would make a good book discussion um, because it, 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 it's, it's, it deals with the whole issue of Aboriginal rights in Australia. And he's a Melbourne writer, and uh, it's, pretty, it's a pretty special book. Well, what's in Latham's book? Latham's book that makes it a good book club discussion book. Well, I, I would say that one of the things is that the main character... Uh, First of all, the writing is marvelous. He's a marvelous writer. Whatever he writes, uh, he just has a wonderful way with words. And, uh, but the main character has Tourette's. And I have never read another, read another book 
where the Tourette's is portrayed on the page in a way that makes you hear what he's saying. So um, it's and and then it's just um, it's it's about it's about fathers and sons and um, growing up and becoming a man. There's lots in it. Would you? It has a powerful sense of place, or at least it did for me, and it's interesting to explore how he does that, because sometimes it seems very indirect. I, I think just for the joy of reading it, there's parts of it that are laugh out loud funny. He's an amazing writer. Yeah, there's one line in it where um, uh, th this guy basically takes under, this man takes under his wing a, a bunch of young kids to, I mean, he's going to raise them to be minor league crooks, basically. But his brother says to him, well, you can't take all of motherless Brooklyn into your, you know, into your life or something, which is, which is what the title um, is taken from. Yeah, that's a wonderful, wonderful book. All right, so what should Gail be reading after The Orphan Train? Anything come to mind? Well, I was thinking of a children's book. Oh, really? <laughs> Actually, there's a children's book set in the um, in the late 19th century, I believe, called Sarah Plain and Tall, um, about one of those girls who comes oh. out to um, to be uh, to take care of children um, and her life. And it's just it'll take you an hour, less than an hour to read, but it does that kind of thing. I've heard of it. Maybe I even read it as a as a child. You might have. But I, I yeah. look it up again. Cause, Patricia yes. McLaughlin. McLaughlin, I think. Or you saw the Glenn Close version on Hallmark Hall of Fame. Right. <laughs> um, what are you reading, Katie Sewell? I'm currently reading nothing, actually. I finished How a book. <laughs> it's, it's, I feel listless, honestly. Did you get the uh, Louisa May Alcott books? I haven't, I haven't gotten them yet. So I will. By next week, I will have them in my hands. Uh, you have to request them. I requested them from the library, but I don't currently have them in my hands. Okay. All right. I do, have, I, do have this note. I do have this note that was passed to me that apparently was somebody who dropped by but couldn't stay. And all they told me when they handed me the note was, ask Nancy about this book. So I don't know if you know it or not, but it's called The Language of Flowers. It, it, I wish it had been the author. I wish she had said something about the author. Is it Gail Sukiyama? No. We have the power to look it up. So just a moment, and then we will do that. Um, while we're looking it up, I, uh, does the library have a lot more books than it used to have? Well, I think there are a lot more books in the world than there used to be. I think that's one of the problems why people are having trouble finding, I'll speak for myself, why I'm having so much trouble finding books that I'm enjoying because the choice is so vast and it's very hard to find the treasures among the everything that's coming out. It's scary, whatever, that we're getting so much stuff. Oh, Vanessa. Vanessa Piffenbaugh. That's Diffenbaugh. Oh, Diffenbaugh. Well, I like my name better. <laughs> Piffenbaugh. Um, I have not read it, but I will take this note, and I have looked at it, but I did not read it. Yeah? How was the cover? I don't, I don't remember. This, there it is. It's a, it's, it says the language of flowers, and there's a lot of flowers on it. Does that attract you to the book at all? 
Nancy and I, we're pretty old. We have to take our glasses well, off and like everything. Not like that. I just had two cataract surgeries in the last three weeks, so can't see anything. Um, no offense, Dr. Smith. <laughs> it's getting better. It's getting better, but it's a little difficult. <laughs> uh, that's very good. We'll leave that there. Do you have anything else, any other things you want to say? Well, the only thing I want to say is we're going to start a little later next week. Yes. We're going to start like at 1045 next week. And we really love it when people come by um, and join us at the table in uh, Bryant Park Cafe. So, and on Tuesdays, cookies are half price. And I can highly recommend the peanut butter cookies. Right? Yes, yes. All right. Thank you all. Thank you very much. This was, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. You can find us on Stitcher. You can find us at iTunes. We're on Facebook, That Stack of Books with Nancy Pearl and Steve Scher. At Twitter, at That Stack. And don't forget, drop by the Bryant Corner Cafe at 65th and 32nd in the Bryant neighborhood of Seattle. And we always want to know what you're reading and what suggestions you might want Nancy to offer, that stack of books at gmail.com. Thanks.